Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Today, we're continuing our series called Being Normal, and I've invited my good friend and co-worker Chelsea Beyer onto the show. Chelsea is a registered clinical counselor, PhD candidate, and university instructor in the Department of Psychology. She is trained as a sex therapist and works with people who are struggling with a range of mental health and relational challenges, and she's been practicing in the Lower Mainland for five years, including with our clinic. Her doctoral research focuses on the intersection of women's embodiment and sexual satisfaction. The heart of her clinical work and research is the desire to help people feel more at home in their own bodies. I am so glad that Chelsea agreed to jump on with me today, and today we're talking about being normal in our intimate partner relationships. So let's jump in. Thank you so much, Chelsea, for joining me today. It's so fun that I get to bridge some of these spaces of my personal and work life here into this show and these episodes. It's so fun to bring some of the people I know and trust and find to be so wise in what they do into this. And so thank you so much for joining me today. I know a little bit about you and I know why I brought you here, but I would love for you to share a little bit about yourself and what brings you to our conversation today. Sure. Thanks so much, Lindsay, for having me. It's just an honor that you would invite me to be here to have a conversation with me um, and um, and see that there's something of value perhaps that I might be able to bring to the conversation and to your listeners mm-hmm. as well. So I know when you and I had connected about this opportunity and your invite to have me on the podcast, um, that a lot of it came from the work that I do typically with individuals and with couples focused on their relationships. And so mm-hmm. that's a big part of the work that I do. I'm a, I'm, I'm a counselor. I'm trained as a sex therapist. And so I do a lot of work with, um, with people, whether they're coming to me because they're running into challenges in their uh, primary relationship, whether that's sex related or more broadly kind of intimacy related or mm-hmm. same thing often comes up with couples that I'm working with too. Yeah. I am so excited to have this conversation with you because I think um, you also have this background and I think it connects to your work in some of the sex therapy, intimacy work, but this piece connected to embodiment. Um, and maybe I'll leave you to talk more about what that means and looks like. But um, I think so much of what 
our audience struggles with is the ways in which they start to embody a role or um, or the stress response trauma exposure pieces become a part of who they are and how that then shows up in so much of what they wrestle with in feeling normal in their everyday lives outside of the work, whether that's in their friendship relationships or intimate partner relationships or with their kids or with other people in their lives, that it becomes this thing that attaches so closely to who they identify themselves as. Um, and so I, I love that you bring that piece to the conversation too. And I'm hoping maybe that shows up as, as we chat, but maybe I'll turn that back to you a little bit to share just a little piece about what embodiment means and looks like, and, and maybe where that connects to some of our conversation today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So actually that takes me back to how I got started in the work that I'm doing clinically. And so it started with, as I was um, going through my master's program and training to be a therapist and my interest research-wise took me into this big, um, fascinating world of embodiment. And the way that I typically like to define that term embodiment is our way of being in our body in the world. Mm -hmm. So it's this sort of interactive experience of having and being a body and also being in the world through our bodies. So it's the way our bodies are the ways in which we connect other people, the way that we have impact on the world around us, the way that the world around us has impact on us. So there's this sort of reciprocality in in that relationship or those relationships. And so that took me um, into the areas of eating disorders and body image And then that led into kind of uh, sex and sexuality areas. Um, It absolutely overlaps so much with trauma because we experience trauma in and through our bodies. Um, And the way that trauma leaves this uh, sort of imprint on us quite often is very um, kind of present in our bodies and the way that we experience our bodies. So that often is the sort of overlap there too that shows up too. Absolutely. Um, We've talked a lot on the show about kind of like regulatory tools and pieces trying to modulate some of those ways in which trauma shows up in our bodies and continues to have um, kind of the echoes of what we've experienced showing up over the course of time. And I think that that kind of leads us into our conversation today to some extent, like what we're talking about through this series on being normal is that emergency response work of whatever kind of nature puts us in positions where any given day of the week is filled with anyone else's worst day in their lives. And that that exposure level can't help but change us to some extent, right? So I often say on this show that the thing about this kind of work is that nobody comes out unscathed, that there's no one who is without some amount of being impacted, affected, and changed by this kind of work. Because to some extent, we're actually like no human is wired for it well. like No one is supposed to be doing this job, right? And so as we are changed by the work, it has this reciprocal impact on so many other facets of our lives and who we are. And that includes our intimate partnership relationships, which is what I hoped that we could chat a bit more about today. So 
given your work with couples, I'm curious what you see as some of the common challenges for couples where one or both partners are in some kind of emergency response work. Yeah, as I was just even sitting with this question um, in anticipation of getting to speak with you today, I was thinking about a couple of things really came to mind. So the, the first one that came to mind is um, quite often sort of this, this disconnect in, in our intimate partnerships. So often the couples or the individuals that I'm working with when we're focused on challenges in their primary romantic partnership. Um, there's this big experience of feeling disconnected from their partner. And that may be at times from sort of a lack of understanding, as in my partner doesn't fully understand what I'm experiencing, what I just yeah. went through throughout the day. Um, they couldn't understand, or perhaps I would never want to even put that on them because it was it's too much. Yeah. Um, so that sort of disconnect and lack in under, of understanding um, and then quite often too, uh, sometimes moving into either like just an extreme sort of stress response, hypervigilance, all the way into sort of shut down fatigue and how that can really impact um, kind of partnerships as well and intimacy and partnerships that can become on both ends of the spectrum, that sort of hypervigilance, feeling really overwhelmed, really wound up, um, hypervigilance sort of at a physiological level. Yeah. all the way to kind of shut down, just completely overwhelmed, maxed out, burnt out, um, can end up creating a lot of disconnect in partnerships too. Totally. Well, and I think what I see is sometimes both of those things at the same time. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, right? Like, you yeah. know, I don't know that it's necessarily one or the other, but it's sometimes like both and all at the same time. And just to kind of name it, I think one of the ways that I see hypervigilance playing out a lot in couples' relationships is almost like the, like poking the bear. Like I see some people who are just really comfortable in the crisis management mode. Like they know it, they're good at it. That's a role I'm familiar with. And so I've had a lot of clients who have shared, like, I'll come home and I know I'm doing it, but I have a difficulty stopping myself where I almost am trying to provoke a fight just because I feel more comfortable and more familiar in the chaos of it and in the intensity and the tension than I do in the normal. And the normal feels more unfamiliar and unsettling and uncomfortable that they're like creating relational ruptures because that feels better or easier. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The sort of chaos, the um, high energy, high stress that starts to feel really normal. And even if it's not necessarily what the person is wanting or what ultimately is good for the relationship, that, yeah, there's this sort of the poking the bear, the, the tension that that's what feels most uh, normal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and then that can cause a lot of challenges, especially if the other partner isn't aware that that's going on or <laughs> right? what is yeah. happening. Why, Why is this it? going on? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I even think about too, how that sometimes can lead into like the, the sort of intimacy and physical intimacy in the relationship and how yeah. for some people that sort of heightened uh, like arousal level 
at a nervous system level that that can feel that sort of excitement or that sort of jolt of like there's something Mm -hmm. happening can feel really um, energizing and kind of be desired. And for other people, actually a large majority of people, it ends up just totally squashing any interest in physical intimacy. It's sort of like, don't be around me. I need my own space or whatnot. And so that can be really divisive in relationships when one person is going, this is what feels normal to me, or perhaps the way that I feel most comfortable functioning. And the other person is going, this is just too much for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The intensity feels too big to feel Mm -hmm. safe in. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's part of what, is tricky for those who do this kind of work is that it dysregulates at a nervous system level, right? So over time, our nervous systems are learning to be okay or as stable as they can learn to be in situations that they weren't really wired to be in on a consistent, ongoing, everyday kind of level. And then they go home to what should be more normal, except now normal doesn't feel normal Mm -hmm. because my whole physiology has adapted to a new normal, like to lack of better words, in what I'm doing all day at my job and where I really need to be on top of it in order to survive and to help other people survive because really it's life and death a lot of the time. And so returning home it's this like weird foreign place sometimes, right? So like we know that over time, the impact of working in first response or frontline work gradually shifts our perspective where the intensity of emergency response starts to feel more and more normal. A normal life can feel like boring and disconnected and uncomfortable and foreign. So how do you see that play out in terms of couples connection and the capacity for meaningful intimacy? Like we've kind of named this piece of there can be this mismatch what does that mean over time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think about a couple of different things. So the first one is I think about how in order to experience a sort of physical um, closeness with another person in a way that feels intimate and safe, we need that experience of safety. And, um, and I'm usually fitting that into what we know from polyvagal theory. So the way that our nervous system responds to um, to stress, to trauma. And it's a little bit like kind of going down a staircase progressively, or sometimes in sort of this cascading way where we start off at a place where we feel really relaxed um, and at ease and safe. And then if there's some sort of threat, then we can move down this staircase, so to speak, at a nervous system level. And when there's a lot uh, demanded of us, when we're under high intensity, where there's a lot of threat or uncertainty or unsafety, trauma, that we can end up moving into the space of mobilization. That's quite often where we see the hypervigilance. Um, And if it keeps going, when it becomes too much, too overwhelming, we can move sort of to the shutdown. But speaking to the hypervigilance that you and I have talked about, if a person is staying there, or if that starts to feel really kind of what's normal to them, mm-hmm. um, that if that's kind of spilling over into their life where they come home, 
Um, it's really hard for us at a physiological level to be able to connect with somebody um, in a sort of intimate, vulnerable way when our nervous system is really sort of mobilized and, and ready to take on something um, that, that might demand a lot of energy from us or might feel unpredictable or unsafe. So it can feel like a really big jump, jump for people to move from this sort of uh, go, 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 high intensity, high stress to trying to connect with their partner in a sort of loving, intimate way. Um, totally. So that's a big way that I see that showing up quite often. Yeah. And, and another thing that I quite often see too is that sometimes then, oh, like you were saying, that sort of the, the calmness or the, the lack of um, sort of uncertainty and high sort of stress um, that ends up happening at the, like in the home life ends yeah. up starting to feel like it's perhaps dull or uncomfortable um, because it's what the person isn't used to. So that sort of lack of intensity sometimes can lead to things feeling quite boring at life. Yeah. And sometimes that can kind of trickle into the relationship. And so there feels like, well, there's a lack of excitement in the relationship. And then that can really start to impact um, sort of uh, intimacy, connection, um, desire for sex, especially. I see that showing up a lot. Fair. I even think like, I'm going to say pre-sexual interest, like kind mm-hmm. of in the, I, and this is my perspective is that, and I think you would share it, um, the day-to-day relating is often what builds the safety in order for sex to feel like a thing that we can move towards that intimacy and closeness feels sufficiently safe. So I think in some of the day-to-day relating, even some of the pieces I hear about are like, like resentment that gets built because uh, for example, I come home and I've done and seen all that I've done and seen at my job today. And I walk in and my spouse um, complains about something that to them feels like a big thing. Mm -hmm. But to me, I look at and kind of roll my eyes. Like you have no idea what hard problems are. Like Mm -hmm. the, the, the difference, the vast difference in what feels big to someone who doesn't see and do what I see and do versus what I've just done and can't even really share with you Mm -hmm. feels really dramatic. And so I hear a lot of people share about like, you know, I go home and my partner tells me about X, Y, or Z. And I sit there and I try to look like I care, but honest to God, like I just don't care. Or I just think it's so silly or stupid or small. And I know I shouldn't feel that way, Mm -hmm. but I do. And I struggle to not kind of like have that resentment moment or wrestle with how I should react or respond to what they're sharing. Cause I just have difficulty finding it relevant given what I've right like what the real world looks like out there or whatever yeah 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 and that that resentment piece oh that can be uh, like a real understandable thing to be experiencing in that situation and it also can just really drive a wedge between people and their partnerships in the long run, especially if it keeps piling up and it has no space to to go or to be worked through. In those situations, I often think like trying to do this tricky balancing act of of being like, oh yeah, that makes so much sense to be feeling that way of it. As in like, I've been going through this or I've experienced that and that's so overwhelming and awful 
that whatever is being shared seems so small, so minuscule. Like, mm-hmm. first of all, just like acknowledging that, like that makes perfect sense to be feeling that way mm-hmm. is I think a really important starting point. But then it's like, how do you work through that sort of resentment so that it doesn't keep piling up and driving a wedge between, between the, the you and your partner? That becomes a really important thing too. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the piece I'm going to flip back at you. It's yeah. like, <laughs> that's I why felt it coming. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> so like, I think my next question on our list is what wisdom do you have to share for those who want to be intentional in protecting their relationship from this kind of impact? Like we've kind of named these pieces, whether it's hypervigilance where I poke the bear or, you know, a perspective shift that really makes it hard to care about some of the things that feel big to my partner, but to me feel you know, small in in perspective of what else I see and do in a day. We've named some of the pieces about like numbing, disconnecting, Mm -hmm. um, and kind of feeling distanced in relationships. So like, these are some of the pieces that show up in significant ways for many couples who are in this kind of work. What can we be doing to support coming down off the work and finding a way back to something that feels more normal in relationships? Yeah, yeah. So if I'm going to speak to the the what you and I were just talking about that resentment piece, or feeling yeah. like, man, like I have a really hard time connecting with what my partner's sharing with me, or I, not even I can't even move to the place of empathizing because I I just feel so much like, man, you don't you don't get it, or you have no idea what what I've been going through, what other people that I've been working with have been going through. That I think like first of all, finding some way to express that whether it doesn't have to be to your partner, but like a, a way to acknowledge um, that, yeah, what you're going through, what you've experienced, that's big. Um, when we end up really locking that down, like keeping it all in, we're listening to our partner and there's no way for us to be able to work through what we're feeling. And that resentment builds up. That's when it becomes the problem. That sense yeah. of that sense of frustration at the beginning point of man, my partner doesn't get it, or that feels so minuscule. All of that is perfectly valid. It makes a lot of sense. And I think first of all, coming from a place of just acknowledging that's okay to feel that way um, is, is key. And then when we give ourselves the space to be able to feel that and, and have some outlet to feel it, um, whether that's you finding other people that can relate to what you've been going through, um, whether that's through people at work or whatnot, or just even finding a way to kind of let that out on your own, um, that then trying to, oh, the, the thought, my thoughts went to like the term comparative suffering, just even having that recognition yeah. Okay. So tell me more about the comparative suffering piece. Yeah. So with comparative suffering, this can be really hard to hear and to like keep in mind when we're feeling the feeling. So when we're in that sort of resentment place or frustration place, feel that first. Um, but I find that just even knowing that there's a term like comparative suffering, what this is referring to is quite often we get into the space of going, well, Um, because there's something that's so big or so difficult to be going through that other things that kind of pale in comparison to that, the magnitude of that thing don't deserve to be, uh, felt, um, like you don't deserve, you can't feel frustrated or sad or overwhelmed by that because look how small it is in comparison to whatever else it is that other people might be going through. 
Um, and right. suffering doesn't work that way. That it doesn't have this capacity, our experience of suffering and, and uh, emotional pain doesn't have this capacity to go, oh, yeah, gee, that's not as bad as other people. We, we hurt regardless of the, the magnitude of things quite often. And so I think having that recognition of going, okay, yeah, that's not the way that suffering and emotional pain or frustration or sadness works. Yeah. And so even just having the awareness of that um, to hold in mind after we allow ourselves to go, yeah, it's totally valid that I'm feeling the resentment or the frustration to just have in mind that going, oh yeah, that's not the way that the su- that suffering works or the way that emotional pain works or the emotion, the way that emotions work. Um, bottom line can sometimes help us go, okay, maybe I can try to uh, at least make space for the fact that that might be hard for my partner to go through. And that at times can kind of help bridge the the connection between two people, even if their experiences are vastly different. Yeah. Okay. So I love that piece in terms of how we navigate some of the resentment pieces. What about some of the pieces around vigilance and or numbing? Mm -hmm. Like what are some of the pieces that we can be doing more intentionally to support some of that in our relationships and protecting our relationships from the weight of what the work can bring home with us? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this, I think, is a huge piece that, um, first of all, just recognizing that this is going on. Um, realizing like some of what you were describing and what you and I were talking about a few moments ago about the way that our nervous system responds to Mm -hmm. stress, to trauma, especially in the long term. So recognizing perhaps the state that our nervous system might be in um, and then working within uh, kind of figuring out what works best for us as as an individual um, in ways to try to sort of regulate and calm our nervous system down. That ends up becoming really important um, because I'll I'll add I'll add this into the mix too because I I usually share this with with individuals with couples when I'm working with them um, mm-hmm. and it relates specifically to to sexual intimacy um, mm-hmm. where often we have uh, sometimes we think about either we're interested or we're not um, that there's this sort of um, kind of binary continuum. And there's some research that's come out kind of late 90s and um, has become really influential and better understanding the way that our brains and our bodies work with regard to uh, sexual intimacy, where we have things that are excitatory and things that are inhibitory. Mm-hmm. And something that ends up becoming really inhibitory for a lot of people um, is the experience of that sort of hypervigilance or trauma I'm feeling stressed, feeling burnt out. And so doing things that try to um, kind of make make people more interested in connecting with their partner on a physical level, that can only get us so far if there's still the stuff slamming on the brakes, so to speak. So attending to the things that help um, take some pressure off of the brake is really essential. And that looks different for different people, but a big component is... Um, trying to sort of, okay, what's going on right now for me? Is that at a nervous system level, am I needing to do something that's grounding or calming? Or am I needing to do something that helps me kind of complete the stress response cycle in terms of getting some of that energy 
uh, used up, that's being kind of um, that energy that's created as that sort of mobilization response with our nervous system. Yeah. Awesome. Well, and I love, (laughs) I feel like we hit the similar theme in a lot of spaces on this show. Um, And I feel like listeners are probably going to be feeling that where they're like, right, we're right back to talking about calming and grounding and self-care and coping. Um, And we are because to be in relationship means to be a person that's taking care of ourselves so that we can care for the relationship. And our jobs are work, but being a human in the world is also work and being in relationship is also work. And it means trying to put some effort into those pieces to know what we need and support those needs effectively. And I love, I mean, I love the simplicity of like, it comes back down to just ensuring that our needs are met and being curious about those and, and enacting pieces that make that a priority. It's like simple, but complicated all at the same time. Absolutely. It's amazing that when we do it, it helps in so many different parts of our world. Like it Mm -hmm. tackles so many jobs simultaneously, which is kind of the magic of it is if we can just focus on building some of these pieces in us, the way that trickles out in our lives has real significance on a really vast scale. Absolutely. Yeah, it really does. Thanks for naming that piece. I'm curious if there's any other pieces that came up as you were kind of anticipating our conversation today that feel meaningful to share or um, kind of additional supports or resources that people can look into if they want to kind of invest harder in this piece about protecting their partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If something that I think might be valuable to, to share with your listeners, because it comes up quite often in the clinical work that I'm doing mm-hmm. is um, talking about the way in which our context changes our experience of certain interactions with our partner. Um, and when I talk about context, I'm usually talking, what I'm talking about is both the external context, that's usually what people are thinking about, and also yeah. our internal context. So yeah. internal context is like, how am I feeling right now in my body? Do I feel really keyed up? Do I feel relaxed? Do I feel confident? Do I feel at ease? Do I feel bloated? Do I feel, <laughs> um, <laughs> do I feel in pain? Do I feel tense? All of that. Um, Is my mind kind of going a million miles a minute or do I feel more present in this moment? So all of those components are kind of wound up in the internal context when I'm talking about internal context in this way. And our external and our internal context really shape how we perceive certain, um, certain experiences or stimuli. So I'll give you an example that comes from one of my favorite authors. She's a sex educator, Dr. Emily Nagoski. Um, she talks about this example of tickling. So for some people, if you're in a setting where you, maybe you have a, a really nice dinner, your favorite meal with your partner, you had a really great conversation with them, you're feeling really present, you felt very listened to, they were attuned to you. Um, maybe uh, you've been listening to your favorite music together and you've been laughing a lot and then maybe they move close to you and they start playfully tickling you. Your experience of that tickle may be, even if you don't like being tickled, it may feel kind of playful and fun and connecting. Mm -hmm. That's because the external and internal context are kind of just so. Mm -hmm. That experience of tickling, same experience, same stimuli, the experience right. of it can shift a whole lot if our internal and external context are different. So if we've just come off of a really stressful, difficult 
day of work and we get home and maybe the house is a bit of a mess and maybe our partner um, says something to us that kind of just grates on our nerves a little bit. Um, maybe we're feeling really tense in our bodies and we're thinking about all of the things that, um, that we have to do in order to get prepared for the next day, all of that. And our partner ends up moving towards us and starts tickling us. That experience mm-hmm. of the tickling is going to be so different from the first one. It's probably going to feel really invasive and irritating. We'll probably feel really angry and want to get away from our partner. And the same thing goes for different types of stimuli. Um, And so really thinking about the external and the internal context become really important in the sort of relational context with uh, one's partner of going, okay, what are the external and the internal context that help me feel maybe more connected to or help facilitate that connection with and that desire to be close to my partner? Um, What sorts of things can we do together? Uh, that kind of set the tone externally and what sorts of things can I do to shift my internal context so that my experience in relation to my partner ends up being um, one that feels maybe a little bit more safe or comfortable or playful or open rather than it feeling evasive or irritating. Yeah, good one. I love the idea of being able to assess on an internal and external level. It feels very practical, um, which is totally my jam. Mm -hmm. I also like that it's kind of bridging to this piece that goes beyond just my own awareness um, to potentially something that feels more like a conversation with my partner, right? That we can have language around, you know, I think so often in moments where, you know, that tickle happens and we're just like, what are you doing? Like, get away from me, right? Like mm-hmm. we we're in the, the moment of that reaction and uh, reactivity to the stimuli that's happening and we lose track of the buildup that got us there. But if we can have ways of communicating about the buildup that's getting us there and ways of communicating about the things that build us to a better place versus a worse place, mm-hmm then we can have a different kind of setup, right? Like if my, if we can have the conversation about how um, I know in my own life, I am extremely impacted by my physical surroundings. Mm-hmm. So coming home to my house being completely trashed is without a doubt one of the most significant things that will define how I feel in a day, right? The rest of the day could be absolute shit. But if my house looks awesome when I walk in the door, I will feel amazing. It actually erodes a lot of what I've experienced in the day. But on the flip side, if I've had an awesome day and I walk into my house and it's trashed, my mood sinks because it just feels the weight of what it has to do to to find a way back to a place of being okay. And it means making my house clean. (laughs) It's a lot of work, right? And so when we can name that and have conversations about the, the pieces that we are really sensitive to, the things that do have a significant effect on us, then we can partner with our partner at trying to navigate and regulate those things a bit more proactively instead of feeling like we're left at the end of the day feeling like nothing worked out in a way that makes me want to be close to you. And so we're just settling for not close because that's what we're left with. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. I love what you're bringing to the conversation about this uh, kind of facilitating conversation between people. 
Absolutely, that it gives us some languaging to go, okay, what sorts of things? So for, for me, maybe context externally is super important. And these are the things that I pick up on that are really important. So can we as a couple or one of us kind of pick up when the other person isn't able to, the things around us, uh, the yeah. context, can we set the context so that it feels a little bit more facilitative of connection? It also gives us the language to go, hey, internal context right now for me. I need to do something to deal with yes. that. Give me a moment or a half an hour or whatever totally. it is. Yeah. Well, and like, I love that that then makes it like less personal, mm-hmm. right? So like, I know that my husband knows that I am really affected by my home. He is a full-time stay-at-home parent. So he is largely responsible for the state of our home any given day of the week. And it is not a thing that his context cares about at all. Like it does not affect him at all. And so it has been one of those like recurring arguments and conversations. And the challenge has always been like, it's it's not about him not being someone who cleans. It's about me being someone who really just needs peace in my surroundings to feel peace in my body. Mm-hmm. And so I get that that feels like a lot of burden. So what are the ways that we can like, negotiate that right so like we have two small kids we're not at a state in our lives where a clean house is a thing to reasonably expect (laughs) no matter how much I wish for it Mm -hmm. so now it's been like okay so is there a space a room in the house that could stay nice at one point it was down to like I bought a yellow chair (laughs) and it was like the holy chair like no one's allowed to touch the chair no one's allowed to sit on the chair this is mommy's chair As long as the chair and the table next to it were tidy, it did not matter how insane my house was, as long as I just had this little corner that was sacred in mine, Mm -hmm. right? And so, and as long as that was respected, it was okay. And so how do we like navigate that? So it was less about, you just don't think I clean enough. You just don't think I this. Like, it's not about that. It's not about you. It's not a personal reflection of me being upset with you. It's just that I I have this need. Mm -hmm. And how do we work to meet that need? Likewise, one of the things I've learned about him, he has a really strong need for like action. Like he likes to do, he likes to be out. He likes to people. He likes to be in it. He has a major sense of FOMO. So as someone who does a lot of work and who sees a lot of people, I often don't want to do those things. So we have had lots of conversations about how it's not really about um, me that he wants to go and be doing all these things. He just wants to go and do all these things. So how do we facilitate that? How do we like go anytime you want to go with your friends? I'm going to say yes to that because I know that fills your bucket Mm -hmm. and that makes you more willing to fill mine. Right. And so how do we like have those conversations about what our needs and interests are that do shape that internal and external context that allows us to enter this together, feeling more capable of nurturing each other's needs too. And how do we name those needs in a way that don't feel like they provoke defensiveness with the partner? Yeah. Right. But are really just like naming needs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Naming needs. And when we can start to talk about the needs, we can, we can start to talk about the context and what facilitates sort of the right context for each person that 
that ends up feeling, I think it can lead to the conversation feeling less personal and then people become a little less defensive, hopefully. That's the the aim there, to be able to have yeah. conversations about how can we sort of collaboratively come up with this where, like you were saying, yeah, if this is a need that you have or this is a way that you feel maybe a little more at ease or a little more calm or more uh, kind of receptive to connecting with me, how can we create that that sort of external context together? And what can we do for you to be able to create that internal context that kind of puts you in the position? I really appreciate some of the pieces that we've touched on. Like, I think that we've done a really good job identifying what some of the common relational dynamic features and challenges are for those who do this kind of work and experience this kind of exposure level. Um, I actually really hope that people listen to this with their partner. Like, I think that it would be really valuable for, for partners to hear how normal this is mm-hmm. in terms of common experiences of those who work in this kind of work. Cause I think that it can feel very personal when it's you and your relationship. And I think, uh, there would be a ton of value in having couples be able to listen to this together and kind of go like, yeah, that's us. Um, doesn't that sound a lot like what we're always arguing about or find ourselves feeling disconnected around? Um, Mm -hmm. You had brought up a person that you identified as being a really respected resource and mentioned Emily Nagoski. So just to circle back to that for a second, are there any specific resources from Emily Nagoski's work that you would find to be really valuable for people to check out? Yeah, absolutely. I'm. I, you mentioned practicality. I'm with you. <laughs> if we can give people practical things uh, to work with, all the better. And so Emily Nagoski has a book, Come As You Are. She just did a revised version of it, which mm-hmm. is specifically on uh, the science of, of female sexuality and sex. And so it's a fabulous resource if Mm -hmm. that sounds like um, whether it's you personally or wanting to better understand your partner, that that's great. There's also a workbook that she put out just maybe a year or two ago that's a companion book to that book. Mm. And the workbook is really cool because it ends up taking, kind of building on a lot of the concepts. So for example, like the context piece, um, it has exercises in there. And so both people or people in in their partnership are able to kind of work through it perhaps alongside one another or it can facilitate conversations about, okay, what sorts of things help for me feel like it's a really good context for me to connect with you? What are some of the things internally and externally that help facilitate that? So it's a nice sort of way to identify and then also facilitate conversation. So it's called the Come As You Are Workbook. Okay, cool. I will look them up and make sure that I link to them in the show notes so that they're really easy to find for anyone who's looking. I also know that I think it's Emily along with her sister Mm -hmm. co-wrote a book called Burnout. Yeah. Um, And I haven't read it myself. I don't know if you have, but um, I've heard really good things about it. And I think that similarly really grounds into some of the like neurobiology, physiology of stress and the ways in which over time that leads into things like burnout. Um, and the the impacts that has on various aspects of our lives. So um, I think she's just a really strong resource generally. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, she's everything that she writes to both burnout and uh, the Come As You Are book and workbook, they're all grounded in, um, in empirical research too. 
And she writes it in a way that's just so relatable and at times funny and very normalizing too of people's uh, different types of human experiences as well. So I think she's a great resource. We need more of those people in the world, like the Emily Nagoskis and the Brene Browns. Yeah. We just need <laughs> as many of them as possible <laughs> with you to make the world a better place. I love it. Awesome. Okay. Well, I really appreciate that as kind of a, an additional resource that people can direct to when they feel like listening today provokes an interest in wanting to do more and, and be more intentional and proactive in their relationships. I really value you bringing your wisdom um, and experience to this conversation, Chelsea. I know it's going to have a ton of value. Um, so thanks so much for being here. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Lindsay. You bet. I want to just say thank you so much again to Chelsea for joining me today. I feel so lucky that we were able to get her onto the show I have gotten to know and have Chelsea in my life as a clinician in our clinic for a number of years now, and her wisdom and strength in the area of her practice is phenomenal. We're so gifted to have her. As we wrap up today, I want to remind you to please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. You know I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. I love hearing about what you're working on and how you're using what we talk about on the show. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, where you can follow me or tag me, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. I'm grateful that many of you are keen to share about Behind the Line and spread the word to others on the front lines. Really, it's been amazing to watch listenership explode these last few months, and it is so thanks to all of you. So thank you for sharing with those you know. Know that we can be found online on our website, on most major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. Click subscribe to get alerts about our latest episodes, or subscribe to our email list to hear more from me about all the things we've got going on and coming up. You'll find all the details you need in the show notes, along with links to our free Beating the Breaking Point Indicators Checklist and Triage Guide to help facilitate self-assessing burnout and related concerns. We make all of this available to you because the work you do matters. But more than that, you matter. And we want to make sure that you have what you need to keep up the good work at work, but also in your very real life outside of the work with the people who matter the most to you. So use it and share it. And until next time, stay safe.